You don't have to live very long until you realize that all of us will have moments, seasons, when things happen, when we make decisions, <clears throat> when other people do things, and those moments, those decisions, those seasons, they change our future. I mean, something happens, and it can be good, it can be bad, but the rest of your life is going to be different because of it. I've enjoyed uh, watching the NCAA basketball tournament this year, and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago Greg Marshall and the Wichita State Shockers, and boy, last night they came so very, very close to beating Louisville and making it to the championship game Monday night. Now, go ahead. I'll, uh, I'll tell Greg you applauded for him next time I talk to him. They, I mean, they really got close to winning that thing. And, uh, and, and, and here's the thing. He's getting so much positive publicity nationally for being an outstanding coach. And professionally, when it comes to his career, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if he's ever going to get a different job. I don't know what's going to happen. But I guarantee you one thing. His future is going to be radically different because of the success of his team this year than it would have been otherwise. In fact, when he was at Winthrop and took Winthrop to all those NCAA tournaments and they won their first tournament game when they beat uh, uh, Notre Dame up in Spokane, that opened up doors for him that got him where he is today. And all of us... All of us have moments in life. Now, yours may not be as big as that. You may not be someone who's prominent and nationally known. But the truth is, every one of us, in our world, in our sphere of influence, in our place, we have those moments in life, those seasons when things happen, when we accomplish something, we make a decision, somebody else does something that impacts us. We all have those moments, those seasons where life changes and where the future is going to be different because of that moment. Young people... You, you don't fully grasp it now. You sort of do, but you're going to get it more as you live. You can make decisions right now. And, and we see it happen all the time. You can make some decisions when you're teenagers, and, and it's going to impact your life when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50. And it can be a good decision. It can be a bad decision. That's how life works. We all have those times, those moments, those experiences. And uh, like I say, some are big and some are small. One of, the, one of those moments that, that impacted my destiny was that Monday afternoon in geometry class when I was a sophomore in high school, and Evelyn said, come to church tonight. She invited me to attend a revival service on Monday night, and, and, and I went just because I wanted to sit with her. And my life was changed. In fact, I would not be here today if not for that moment. That was the first time I'd ever gone to church. I would not be here this morning preaching this message if she had not in that moment extended to me that invitation and if I had not in that moment accepted her invitation. My future was changed because of it. That's how life is. And one of the things I want us to do in this new sermon series titled Grace Changes Everything is come to a fresh understanding of how significant God's grace, God's love is and how it really does change everything for us. How our encounter, our experience with the grace of God, with the love of God, changes our future. How it changes our life. How it changes our destiny. So I invite you to open your Bible to the fifth chapter of Romans. Over the next few Sunday mornings, we're going to study the first 11 verses. Because this passage describes how radically different our life is, our situation is, 
once we have a relationship with Christ, once we experience His love and, and we have salvation, things are radically, significantly different than they would otherwise be. So we're going to look at that in the weeks to come. But I want to begin this morning by focusing on this word grace, this word love, and help us understand God's grace, God's love, what it is, and how He's demonstrated it, and also understand why you and I so desperately need God to love us, why we so desperately need God to have grace toward us. So let's read together the first 11 verses just to get the passage in our mind, starting at verse 1, chapter 5 of Romans. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult or we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Verse 6. For while we were still helpless, or your Bible may say weak or without strength, at the right time in, in due season, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, this morning, we're going to focus on verse 8. In this passage, he uses a lot of different words to describe the change that comes to us once we have God's love in our life. But verse 8 is our focus today. Look at it again. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want to start by looking at God's love, God's grace, and thinking about what it is. Now, this is a table, and on it are some objects of love. Objects of love. Little plastic Easter egg. My wife loves Easter, and she always has prepared Easter baskets for us. Um, she, she prepares one for each of our children. This last weekend, our, uh, our daughter-in-law and Stephen were with us, and she had an Easter basket for Stephen. She had an Easter basket for our daughter-in-law. Our daughter-in-law's brother and his fiancée spent the weekend with us. She had an Easter basket for each of them. And, as always, she had an Easter basket for me. Now, what's significant is she always puts these little plastic eggs in her and puts candy and so on. The first time Monisa ever told me she loved me was on an Easter Sunday. And she had me an Easter basket filled with eggs and candy and stuff. And she had one of these plastic eggs, and she had written a little note on it that said, I love you, and put it in the egg. And I was opening these eggs with her that Easter Sunday afternoon and pulled out the note. And that's the first time she ever said to me, I love you. And so I love these little plastic Easter eggs because they always make me think about that. A couple of weeks ago before Easter, our, our children from the day school were out here in the lobby. You know, the teachers were hiding the eggs, and they were hunting for them and all. And every time I walk around and I see these little things, I think about Monisa telling me, 
I love you. Now, in the years since, every Easter when she prepares my Easter basket, she puts in there one of these chocolate Easter bunnies. One year she put in the, the hollow one, and I told her no more. So it's always a solid one. I want the real deal, okay? Solid chocolate Easter bunny. Well, last Sunday, get my Easter basket. It's got all the usual goodies in there. Well, I've been on a diet. I've lost 50 pounds since the last day of September. And, and, and so, the, well, thank you. No chocolate Easter bunny. And I was glad because she didn't want to tempt me. But instead, she got me a gift. Now, she, she and I both enjoy candles. That's right, guys. I'm a guy who likes scented candles. Get over it. I like them. And, and we, we have several of these, uh, what do you call them, scenties that burn the, the, the scented wax and so on. You know? And so she got me a new scenty candle. But this is a really special one. Go Big Blue. Okay? So if you come to see me in my office, you're going to have to stare at this Kentucky Wildcat scented candle burning on my desk, all right? I'm going to set it right there so y'all can stare at it the rest of the morning. Eat your heart out. Now, there's nothing big on this table. But these represent something really big. They represent love. And this because truly she didn't want to tempt me. So she didn't get me the solid chocolate Easter bunny. She, she did get Stephen one, but she didn't get me one. Well, he's skinny. He can have it. But see, love is knowing what another person needs and then meeting that need. Love is also knowing what another person enjoys and likes and thinking about that and paying attention. And by the way, in your marriage, one of the mistakes we often make is thinking that marriage is all about the big stuff, the big days, the big anniversaries, the big trips, the big gifts. And those matter because they add some spice to life. But in marriage, it's the daily smaller acts of love that matter more. Because if you wait for every fifth year anniversary or whatever before you do an, uh, you know, a, a big act of love and, and you kind of ignore it, in between, you're not, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get to one of these days out there when one of these big days come, and he's not there, she's not there, because life is made up of the little things more than the big things. The big things make it interesting and add spice, but it's the ongoing day-to-day -day small things that make up life, and that's that's true with love. That's true with love. And God loves us, and, and, and God shows it every day. He shows it for everyone. In fact, Jesus said that God blesses the, the good and the bad with rain. God loves everybody every day. But this passage teaches that, that God has demonstrated a practical love for us in a really big way in Jesus Christ and the cross. It's something He chose. Now, early this morning, about 5.30, I chose to do something to show love to my wife. She's been in Louisville and Lexington all week, and later this afternoon is flying back, back home, and I'll pick her up at the airport. So when I get up this morning early, I decided to do something to show my wife that I love her, and I'm thinking about her, and I'm glad she's coming back home. What I did to show Monisa how much I love her was I made the bed. 
The reason that's a big deal is I hate making a bed. I don't get it. I don't understand what the big deal is about making beds. You're just going to mess them up again that night. When I was in college, John, listen, I, I never made my bed. When I was in seminary, I never made my bed. I took the sheets off at Christmas break and summer break and took them home for mom to wash. I mean, I was a typical guy. And my, my wife, the first thing she does when she gets up is make the bed. And on those days when I'm still in it, when she leaves, it doesn't get made. And she can come home at 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon, bed's not made. It doesn't matter if we're getting back in it in a few hours. 4.30, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, she goes in there and she makes that bed. Well, I'll tell her some of you clap for her. Now, I admit it makes the room look better. But I just don't understand. Now, I, I've got my things. I, you know, I, I don't like a dirty sink, so I keep the dishes clean. You know, I wash the dishes and put them up. I, I, I just don't like a dirty kitchen. But she's got to make that bed. She, I took her to the airport really early Tuesday morning to fly to Louisville. This morning was the first time the bed's been made since she's been gone. Okay? But I want my baby to walk in there and know that I thought about her. That's love. And God, God looked at it, all of us, and He said, Listen, I know there's some things in your life that are really messed up. You don't like to make beds. There's some things about you that's really messed up, okay? But I love you. And I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to demonstrate it. And in, in, in a way that there can no longer be any discussion, any debate about whether or not I love you. And so he says in verse 8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us, his own. It's, it's a strong word meaning God's love, his love. And he demonstrates it. That has kind of two ideas associated with that word. One is to show or to exhibit, to demonstrate. And the other is to establish or prove. And so God in Christ has demonstrated, has exhibited, has shown publicly his love for us, his love for you. He's established it. He's proven it. There's no doubt about it. He's done it in, in front of the whole universe. He's done it before all of eternity. He said, I, I'm showing you I love you. And it's in the present tense, which is the idea that he's continuing to show us. That when you look at Jesus and you look at the cross, that is an ongoing, everyday reminder that God loves you. An ongoing, everyday demonstration of God's love for you, no matter your circumstance in life. Now, look at verse 8 again. Here, here's how he demonstrated it. Notice what he says. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ blank for us. What did he do? What does it say? Talk to me loudly. What does it say? Christ died for us. Jesus' death was as real as any death. Jesus' death was painful. Jesus was the Son of God, but He was also Son of Man. And as such, He didn't want to die. That's the reason the Gospels tell us that the evening He was arrested when He was praying in the garden, that He was sweating profusely, and the sweat was falling to the ground like drops of blood. It's the reason He prayed, Let this cup pass from Me. He didn't want to die. His death was traumatic. His death was painful. His death was real, just like every other death. But his death was also an expression of love. 
as he died in our place. Look at verse 8 again. While we were yet sinners, Christ died blank us for us. That little bitty word, Christ died for us. That little bitty word in the Greek language means just what you think for means. In our place, on our behalf, in our stead. For our sake. He died in our place. In Galatians 3.13, the words will be on the screen. The Bible says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He redeemed us. He purchased us. He purchased our freedom from sin and its consequences. Purchased our freedom from the grave. Purchased our freedom from hell. He bought us back. From the curse, the curse of the law. God's expectations that we've all come up, we've all come short of. And, and the punishment for that. And the curse of that law. He, 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 he redeemed us. He bought our freedom from that by becoming a curse himself, by hanging on that cross in our place and becoming sin for us. The Bible says that that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Think about this. On that cross, in some sense that I can't fully grasp, He became what we are. Sin was placed on Him. And He bore the punishment that was due us. On the screen you'll see the words from 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the Bible says that Jesus... One too many. Back up. Back up. Back up. Back up. Well, we've lost it. Anyway, that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for us. <clears throat> Everybody in this room knows what a ransom is. And usually, you know, you watch a movie and somebody's been kidnapped, a child of some wealthy thing has been kidnapped or whatever. And they got to pay a rent. What do they do? They, they, they go to the bank and they take out this large sum of money. They put it in a bag. And then somebody usually takes it and they, 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 they drop it off at some predetermined location for the kidnappers to, to pick up, right? Well, when it came to you and me being enslaved to sin, Jesus didn't, you know, go into heaven and reach over here and find something that he said, okay, here, I'm going to pay this for you. He didn't find a, a big bag of money that he, the, he gave to the devil for you. The ransom was not a sack of money. The ransom that Jesus paid for you was himself. <clears throat> His life. The one who had never sinned and given himself to the cross became the ransom, became the payment, became the sacrifice, became the substitute for me, for you, for us, for everyone, because of our sin. And all of that was a way for him to say, I love you. All of that was a way for him to say, I know what not only you like, I know what you need. You don't need a chocolate bunny. I'm going to give you something better instead. 
All of that <clears throat> was an act of love for each of us. For each of us. Now, I want you to think about why you need God's love. Why you need God's grace. Because some of us think, hey, we're doing okay. And we're glad that God cares about us. Some of us think, you know, hey, I want God to help me. And I think I'm going to go to heaven. But you can't really appreciate the significance of God's love and God's grace until you understand how desperately you need it. Until you understand how bleak, how bleak your situation is without His grace, without His love. And so he uses several words in this passage to describe our condition, our situation, if you will. Without God's love, without His grace, without salvation that Jesus makes possible. And if you look at verse 8, one of those words is, he says, God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet what? Sinners. That's the word that sometimes you hear described as a word meaning to miss the mark or miss the goal. Have any of you ever set some New Year's resolutions for yourself? You ever <clears throat> written out a goal, something you wanted to accomplish, something you wanted to do? Have you ever made a, a promise to your spouse or to a parent or to a friend? Have you ever prayed and said, God, I'm going to do such and such. I make this commitment. How'd you do? Have you kept every commitment you made to God? Have you kept every promise you've made to your spouse, to your parent, to your friends? Have you met every goal you set for yourself? All those new resolution, New Year's resolutions, did, did, you, did you follow through on all of them? See, the truth is we all miss the mark a lot in life. And God says, I've set a goal for you. Here's the mark, the target that you're to aim your life at. Holiness. Holiness, purity. Complete obedience to the will of God. And we aim our lives, and the truth is, every day, there, there, there are moments we miss that mark. We miss that target. The truth is all of us are going to stand before God as people who during our time on this planet are guilty of having committed thousands upon 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 thousands of sins. Thoughts we shouldn't have had. Words we should never have spoken. Things that were wrong to do. Things we didn't do that we should have done. Attitudes that needed to get right. We've sinned a lot. We've missed the mark God set for us a lot. Whether you're old or young, we're all in that boat. And so he says we're sinners. 
that's a term we don't like to use in our culture because nobody likes to think of themselves as a sinner. I don't like to think of myself as a sinner. You don't like to think of yourself as a sinner. And if you listen to the music or the TV or, the, or, or just the, the culture in general, we're all pretty good people. But God says we're all sinners. Having sinned more times than we can possibly imagine. But he also, if you look at verse 6, says we're helpless, or your Bible may translate it weak or without strength, powerless, physically weak and not strong, morally, spiritually. Earlier this week I preached at the funeral of a man who had been physically sick, very, very sick for over five years. There are some of you this morning dealing with physical issues because your body's not perfect. It's physically weak without strength. And eventually it's going to become so weak you die. And in that moment when you are so physically weak you die, what can you do to help yourself? Moral weakness. Those things we want to do, but for some reason we never seem to get around to doing them. That that lifestyle that we know we need to live, but yet we come up short. We, 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 we need to put safeguards in place, you know, guardrails to protect us because we're so morally weak. If we don't put some of those guardrails in place, we'll run off the road and make a wreck of things. That's the reason my wife didn't put that Easter bunny in my basket because she knows I'm weak. I'd eat it. And she didn't want to tempt me. And by the way, let me get off topic for just a minute. Husbands and wives, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. You are too morally weak to begin having conversations with someone of the opposite sex at work or anywhere else about your marriage, about your spouse, about issues in your family life. You are playing with fire. You're too morally weak. And if you do, listen, half the affairs in this country start because a man and a woman, not married to each other, they're married to other people, begin discussing their personal lives and their marriages and their problems at home with someone of the opposite sex. And there's a psychological thing that happens and you get in trouble. And I, I don't know how to say this anymore clearly that I'm saying it now. If you're doing that, you're not smart. If you're doing that, you're playing with fire. You better put the guardrail up that you never discuss the intimacy of your marriage with someone of the opposite sex. Because you're morally weak. Just a word to the wives. Spiritually weak. I mean, let me ask you, if you're going to get yourself to heaven your own way and your own merit, what are you going to do? Hmm? What are you going to do? How are you going to get yourself to heaven? How are you going to make up for all the sin in your life? You can't. We're sinners and we're spiritually weak, but he also says that we're ungodly at the end of verse 6. That means without reverence for God, without worship for God, without 
fear of God. In more everyday language, it means we tend to do what we want instead of what God wants. And, and the foundation of every sin in our life is, is doing what I want instead of seeking God and His purpose and His plan and His will and His priorities. And then in verse 10, He calls us enemies. Hostility toward God. Hostility toward His Lordship in our lives. Hostility toward His plan, His will. And, and, it's kind of, and, and, and there's a two-way street there because in this passage and elsewhere he talks about us being worthy of God's wrath. You see, the truth is because we are sinners and we're ungodly and we are spiritually, morally, and, and physically, because of our weakness, because of our hostility toward God at different points in life, we are worthy of His wrath. God would be justified in giving us nothing but wrath. That's our predicament. But it's in that moment when we deserve wrath that God says, I choose love. I choose love. But to understand His love, you've got to be honest with yourself about your sin. We sometimes say of an addict that to get his life turned around, he has to hit rock bottom. Has to feel the pain. Has to know the consequences. You see, as long as you and I think, hey, we're okay, we don't have any problem. We don't think of ourselves as people who really are sinners then our sense of how much God loves us is less than His love really is. Because that, that, that's the reason there in verse 7 He talks about how we sometimes will sacrifice for other people, you know, good people. But Jesus did not sacrifice for good people. He sacrificed for everybody. And everybody is sinners. Ungodly. That's the greatness of His love. But once, once, once you get that, and then you encounter His love, all of a sudden, you experience His love. And in the weeks to come, we're going to look at how that love changes us, how that grace changes us. But once you encounter that love, because you know you're so desperate for it, without it you have no hope. Once you get that, suddenly there's freedom and there's peace and there's joy and things change. But as long as you go along thinking, hey, I don't really need it. I'm, I'm glad God loves me, but I don't really need it. It's okay. I'm doing pretty good. You're going to rob yourself of so much that God has for you. And the challenge for a lot of us if we've been in church our whole life, it's hard for us to remember what it was like to never have God in our life. 
I was saved as a teenager, but I'm 55 now, and the longer I live, the more difficult it is to remember those days before Christ. And the more I forget those days, the less I really grasp the significance of His grace. So look in that mirror and see yourself as someone who without His love is a sinner, ungodly, without strength, and an enemy of God. It is His love that changes all that. And nothing but His love that changes that. And you see, when churches... And people in churches argue all the time about whether or not we should be out there trying to win this world to Jesus. It's because they've lost their understanding of the significance of His love for sinners and the ungodly and the weak. Jesus loves them. He loves us. Will was talking a moment ago about the hurt that he and Lori had experienced and how God has used the love of this family to heal them. And by the way, I could name some other ministers that we've loved on over the years and doing so has salvaged their ministry. Love changes things. Love changes people. It changes lives and destinies. And that's what God's love does for us. So when we start looking in the next few weeks at how He's changed us, I want you to to begin today, but I want you to think and I want you to pray and I want you to talk to God and I want you to express some gratitude for the fact that He loves you. And if through the just the circumstances of life you've started taking His love for granted, ask His forgiveness for that. Let's stand and pray. And then after this prayer, I'm going to invite you to come and make decisions for Christ. Father, standing here this morning are people you love and for whom Jesus died. And God, I know that we hear about your love and we read about it in the Bible but sometimes like married couples do we start taking it for granted I pray today that you will help each of us to pay attention to you to see your love and express love to you Help each one who needs to make a public decision to do so right now in Jesus' name. Amen. From all over this room, make your way to the altar and pray. Come and join this church. Come and commit your life to Christ. Come and pray. Come make your decision right now. Let's sing. You come.